And this week we'll be thinking together about expressions of a new heart. Expressions of a new heart. And so, if I haven't met you yet, my name's John Henderson, one of the associate pastors here at UBC, one of the elders. So we've been walking through this, yeah, a couple months through Matters of the Heart series where we've yeah, just been trying to develop from Scripture a theology of the heart to see and understand ourselves through the lens of Scripture, through the very words of God, how we explain why we think, feel, and act the way we do, how we change, why we are the way we are, how a person is transformed. Those kinds of questions and ideas is what we're jumping into in the Scripture in these few months. Let's yeah, go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we do yeah, thank you that you have not left us in the dark, that you have spoken, that you have placed your spirit in us to illumine us to your word. It is your word that gives light to our path, gives truth to our lives, gives perspective and a way to see and to hear and to understand who you are and what you're doing, who we are and what your desires for us might be. And so we pray this morning that you would yeah, continue your good work in us, that you who have begun a good work in us would perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, that you would, yeah, through looking into your word and trusting and believing upon Christ, that you would, by your spirit, conform us to his image, that you would make us more like him, that we would think and feel and as you do, that we would love as you do, that we would forgive as you do, that we would be humble as Christ was humble. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, expressions of a new heart. What constitutes real change for a human being? That's sort of some of the question that we've been diving into last week, these weeks ahead. Where does real change begin? And we talked about the answer to that question last week with the word regeneration and just uh, the doctrine of regeneration, that we must be born again. And it is the Spirit by God's grace, that brings that change about inside us, that he can actually give us a new heart. Here's how our UBC Statement of Faith actually phrases this. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit, meaning brought about by the Holy Spirit, who revives the dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually and savingly enlightening their minds to understand the word of God and renewing their whole nature so that they voluntarily love and practice holiness, that it is a work of God's free and special grace. So God's not obligated to, it's by his own sovereign grace and will and desire that he chooses us and by his grace gives the gift of the Holy Spirit who then brings about a new heart in us because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he makes us alive together with Christ. Then one of the questions I want us to think about this morning is how do we know a heart has been born again? How do we know that regeneration has actually been brought about by the Holy Spirit? Remember last week we looked at John 3 when Jesus said these words to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So, okay, we don't see the Spirit. We don't hear the Spirit. We're not able to sort of perceive directly 
There the Spirit is, but we hear the effects of the Spirit. We see the effects of the Spirit. So the question is, okay, what are those effects? What are the expressions of a new heart that shows, okay, the Spirit has been here. The Spirit is here. The Spirit's working inside this person. We'll go back to the UBC Statement of Faith. Here's what we believe as a church, as a congregation. The proper evidence of regeneration appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces. I mean, they come together from God. Wrought in our souls, wow, we really like that word, wrought. Brought about in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God, whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with genuine sorrow. Being convinced of those things, aware of those things, we now turn to God with genuine sorrow, confession, supplication for mercy, at the same time heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and relying upon him alone for salvation. So we believe as a church, okay, that's the, the evidence that regeneration has happened. The expression of a new heart, repentance, faith, newness of life convinced of the danger of the wrath of God, the danger of judgment that's coming, the guilt that we sit under as sinners before God, the helplessness of our condition that we can't do anything to change it, and being aware of, the, okay, the way of salvation in Christ, we turn to God from sin with genuine sorrow, confession, supplication for mercy. You even think about just when, if any of you have ever yeah, had kids, just when that baby comes forth from the room or from the womb, what's the first thing you want to hear come out of that child that tells you things are okay? Cry, right? Isn't it that, that what the nursing staff and those around are trying to get that baby to do is cry. That's, that's the evidence. There's life. Things are okay. There's tears. And then immediately after there's tears and crying, what do the nurses do with that baby? Hand that baby to the mother, right? For the mother now to take that child to be hers. And so it's this interesting sort of picture, I think, this illustration of how faith, repentance, those things work, that in new birth, it starts with tears. It starts with a kind of, so that's the sign, okay, there's life. And then there's this union with the mother, the one who gave birth to care for this new child. And according to Ephesians 2, God the Father made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's the gift of God us making us alive with Christ is what makes it possible for us to be saved through faith. That's where it starts. But it's not where it finishes. There's sort of repentance and faith at that initial moment of regeneration, but then it's not that, okay, it stops there. That's some of the other things we're going to talk about this morning. If you think about Habakkuk 2.4, behold, the proud man, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So born again by the work of the Holy Spirit, born again by faith in what Christ has done, and then now we actually live by faith. 
the righteous shall live by faith. So those are the things we're going to talk about this morning, faith and repentance, these two expressions of a new heart in Christ. And frankly, deep, detailed, massive doctrines of Scripture. One of the things I want us to push back on this morning is the idea of, oh, just have more faith. Just the flippant statement. Oh, just sort of, you know, you repent and then you're kind of done. Rather than actually, these are sort of deep-rooted things that are meant to go down into the foundation of our lives and reshape our whole way of relating to God, our whole way of relating to each other. These are not small words. They're big, massive categories for the Christian life. So we'll start with faith. And one description of faith is found in Hebrews 11.1. One. Many of you know that verse. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith compels us to trust in what God promises. We don't see the end of it. We don't see exactly what's going to come of all of it. But we trust the person with a firm conviction, the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. So the phrase, even effectual faith, if you've heard that phrase, refers to a true saving faith that believes specific truths of the gospel and then trusts in Christ alone for salvation. And so we'll look at kind of three key elements of this, the three key pieces of what real effectual faith involves. One is knowledge, the second is going to be conviction, and the third is trust. And those are kind of three sort of aspects of faith that have been understood by the church for centuries. In fact, you know, John Calvin, John Owen, others of the Puritans kind of use three Latin words to kind of capture these three aspects. Notitia is the first, or Latin for being known. And that refers to the kind of the content of our faith. In order for it to be genuine faith, there has to be certain content that is believed. If we think about Jude 1.3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, noun, that was once for all delivered to the saints. And there the faith is being referred to as the content of the gospel. That's why when we minister the gospel to another person, when we share Christ with someone who's not a believer, we don't sort of go, oh, it doesn't really matter what we tell them is true. Or we go, no, there's actually specific content we need to communicate. There's specific truths that need to be known in order for faith to actually be a true, genuine faith. It does actually matter whether or not Christ was raised from the dead. It does matter that it's believed that he is the son of God in the flesh. You can't just interchange Mohammed for Jesus or Allah for God. You can't just put in the truths of any sort of holy book from any religion, and just so long as it's sincerely believed, you can be saved. No, the actual content really matters. What we're actually knowing and believing is gonna matter. But then a second aspect is what, yeah, in Latin is called a census, which means assent or approval our conviction that the content of our faith is true. So there's the knowledge, there's the content, then there's this sort of conviction that, okay, this is true. We just read it in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's sort of the second step of what real genuine faith is. There's something we know and we're convinced. Okay, this is true. 
Listen to Romans 4 when it's spoken of Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. There's the phrase. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So there's certain content. Okay, God promised something. But then there's the conviction, okay, this, these promises are true. God's able to do it. Which then leads to that third aspect of fiducia, which is Latin for trust or assurance or faith. So it refers to this sort of personally leaning upon the person that makes that promise. We heard it there in Abraham that, yeah, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So there's this sense that, okay, he's resting, leaning upon, throwing himself entirely upon this God who made these promises that he's convinced of. Paul says it in 2 Timothy 1, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed. There's a person there that he knows. I'm convinced that he's able. There's the ascensus to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So there's this sense even that there's something he's banking on, relying on, throwing himself upon. And this is actually what separates our faith from the faithlessness of demons. This third piece is essential. Listen to what James says in James 2.19. You believe that God is one. There's the content. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Yeah, the demons know who God is. Jesus shows up. The demons knew who he was. This is the son of God. That's who is now walking on the earth in flesh. And they know that. They're convinced even of it. But they never entrust themselves to this God. They don't rely upon him for salvation. Demons don't repent and throw themselves at the mercy of Jesus. But they know who he is. And that's why we can say, okay, just... Just knowing those facts, even being convinced they're true, isn't actually enough. You have to actually entrust yourself, throw yourself upon the mercy of the God who promises it, the Christ who is being presented. And that's why it really is a work of the Spirit in us, that in some ways the heart can be not regenerated and still kind of know facts. A heart can be not born again and have a sense that, okay, these things are true. And it may just be because we've been taught it for our whole lives. It's something we've grown up around. It's something that we, was taught in our school. It was taught in our home. And so we have all the information. We can regurgitate the information. But for it to be effectual faith, our heart actually has to be given over to it in trust. We actually have to cling to Jesus. And we'll sort of unpack some of that idea as we go. We see all these three layers in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, where Paul's going to say, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. There's the notitia, there's the knowledge, there's the, the true facts of the gospel. I preached it to you, which you received. There's incensus. You, okay, you assented to this. You knew this to be true, in which you stand. There's the fiducia that you've actually rested upon this. You've taken your stand upon this. And by which you're being saved. 
if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Think about that. Unless you, your belief was actually empty. That's actually possible to have an empty belief because you're not actually standing in it. You haven't actually come to a place where you're resting in it. I mean, this really is important as we share Christ in our surrounding world, as we minister the gospel to, again, an area that has, has lots of churches, lots of Christian history, lots of men and women who have grown up sort of around the aroma, around the words. And so we have to pray both in our own hearts to, okay, that this is a genuine kind of faith and brokenness and contrition and trust in Christ. But also as we share, we want to make sure that Men and women are actually understanding that this is what effectual faith involves. This is what it takes. It's not enough just to be able to regurgitate facts. So just given all the struggles, all the weaknesses, all the sins of the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul believed they needed more gospel. That's also why we keep preaching the gospel. We keep talking about the gospel. We don't move on from it. You think about all the struggles that the Corinthian church was, was, was going on there. Think about what, what were some of the things happening in the Corinthian church at this time? Just share, throw out some of the things you recall. What's going on? There's immorality. There's, and there's a kind of immorality that even the surrounding world that don't know God is kind of, are kind of impressed by. They're like, oh, wow, we never thought of that. And that's what's going on in the Corinthian church. Yeah, what else? There's divisions that are happening, and divisions even of the worst kinds, where they're actually taking spiritual gifts that the Spirit has given and using those as a means to exalt themselves over others. Can you talk about the opposite of what spiritual gifts are for? Or they're picking their favorite apostles or leaders, and they're dividing over that. Well, I'm of Paul, well, I'm of Apollos, well, I'm of Cephas. And then some even would throw in, well, I'm of Christ. And we might think, well, they're the right ones, aren't they? But Paul's saying, not the way they're using it. Because there's a problem when we say, well, great, you're of Paul. Well, I'm of Jesus. Boom. And what he's getting at is that heart, that sort of pride and arrogance that would actually use Christ that way to exalt self above others. What else is going on? <clears throat> there's false teaching they're letting creep in of various kinds. There's a lack of love. Yeah, just selfishness, pride that is expressing itself in a lack of love. You know, people are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. The rich are eating up all the bread from the Lord's Supper before the poor who've worked all day can get there. So when they arrive, the bread's all gone. The wine's been drunk, and there's actually members of the church drunk at the Lord's Supper. Yeah, they're dragging each other into court. Like they're, there's these, not just divisions, but conflicts. And rather than actually loving one another, serving one another, working it out in a biblical way, one member is taking other members to court, which happened then in an open square. There was in the middle of Corinth, there would have been an open square and a bema seat where, the, you know, where the, the magistrate would sit and they would hear cases in the open air. It was very public. And so here have members of the Corinthian church bringing other members to litigation and to lawsuit in the public square. And Paul's like, is it not already a defeat just that you're there? That is the loss. And most church historians believe that at the time, the Corinthian church had about 70 to 90 people. That's how big it was. So that's, that's busy for 70, 90 people. And yet here's what Paul thinks they need. He's like, you need more gospel. 
you need to understand the real content of your faith. You need to understand what God has really accomplished in Christ. And you need to entrust yourself and throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and live by that faith in a humble way. So there's a lesson for us in that, that given all the problems that are going on in the Corinthian church, Paul thinks, okay, the answer is a better grasp of who Jesus is, a better grasp of what Jesus has done at the cross, a better understanding of the resurrection, which is what he's going to go on to give us in 1 Corinthians 15. It's one of the longest discourses on the resurrection in the Bible. He goes, okay, here's what you all need to understand is the significance of the fact that Jesus was raised and that someday you will be raised. And it's by faith alone in Christ alone that we are justified. Faith is the means by which we hear and believe and obey the gospel. And according to Hebrews 11:2, for by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation, meaning all the saints throughout all of history gained their approval before God, were justified before God because they received the good news by faith. They entrusted themselves to God by faith. That's how they gained right standing before God, by believing his word, by forsaking the world, by laying hold of God's promises. And so even though there's sort of a progression of covenants in the history of Scripture, in redemptive history, ways in which God is entering into covenant with his people, the means by which we interact with God within that covenant has not changed. It's always been by faith. We enter into whatever that covenant is in redemptive history by faith. Abraham believed God, Romans 4.3, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God promised, Abraham believed, entrusted himself to those promises, and God counted that as righteousness. You're now made right before God because you believed what he said. It really is that simple, that clear, where all that work is done on God's part all the heavy lifting by God, and we receive it as a gift. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Nobody. No matter how great your works of the law may be, no matter how much money you've given to the poor, no matter how many weeks you've been in church, no matter how much of the Bible you've been reading, no matter how many works of righteousness you've done, none of that will ever make you right before God. It's Christ's work, his finished work, applied to us because we've received it by faith. So being justified before God in Christ, we are made right with God. We are reconciled to God. And then we need to realize that that then changes everything. That's why Paul talks about it so much. That's why scripture unpacks these truths so often, so deeply, so clearly, because this is actually what changes everything. At the moment you go from alienated from God to reconciled to God, from orphaned to adopted by God, from out in the dark to in the light to filled by the spirit, like everything in your life radically changes in ways we don't even realize. The way we think, the way we feel, the way we live, the way we relate to God, others. It's not everything gets perfected right away, but we just get put on a whole different road with a whole different way of seeing the world. We have fellowship with God. 
We're placed on an entirely new trajectory, which is why then we now live by faith alone in Christ alone. That point three there. That once justified by faith alone in Christ alone, we don't then just put that faith on the shelf. It's not like we just sort of wind up the engine, let it go, and it just goes all the way to glory. No, it's not a spiritual EpiPen. Sometimes we'll use faith that way, right? Just to sort of fight off an allergic reaction. Like when, the, when everything hits the fan, then it's like, okay, I'll just inject faith. As opposed to, no, this is meant to be a way of life, a way of relating to God, a way of seeing the world. We live by faith. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're not just saved by faith, we now live by faith. We walk by faith. That's actually all part of being saved by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7, so we are always of good courage. What a statement. Does that define your, your life? Are you always of good courage? Now, however many weeks from the election or days or whatever it is, always of good courage, no matter what you see going on in the world around you, no matter what's happening in your body, no matter what's going wrong in different people's lives or relationships, always of good courage. Why? He says, well, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Always of courage because we know God's in charge. We know where this is going. We know what the destiny is. We know that though we're absent from the Lord because we're present in the body, sometime we're going to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Then we'll get a new body. Just always of good courage where this is going. That's why, you know, the, the people who had, ought to have the most encouraging words in this day and age are believers. We really do have reason to be most encouraged, most comforting, most secure, most firmly rooted by faith, knowing our God is governing everything, using everything for the good of his people, bringing about all his purposes in the midst of it. And the messier it looks, the more glorious God is in making sense of it and using it all for our good. So we hear and obey the word of God by faith, Galatians 3, 1 through 5. And just so when you arise in the morning and open the word of God and read, just it's even meant to affect the way we read, that we read and go, okay, this is true. Like I can base my life on this. Think about it, has there ever been a time where you're in a conversation, someone's saying something to you, and then they're done and waiting for a response, and that's when you realize you actually didn't listen? I'm not just talking about your kids, I'm talking about like you as well. Like you're in work, your mind went off to whatever, and then they say, well, John, what do you think? Uh, Jesus is great, is that what you're asking? And it, where it's clear, I didn't hear any of that. It's amazing how often we can read the Bible that way. God's talking, sort of there's words, but we're not really seizing them, thinking about them. That's why I often encourage people, better to read one paragraph and really soak it in than 10 chapters and not think about it. 
just the quality of hearing God's word, soaking it in, taking it to heart, letting it work on us. We hear and obey the word of God by faith. We are cleansed by faith, Acts 15, 9. We are sanctified by faith, Acts 26, 18. We are encouraged by one another's faith, Romans 1, 12. We gain, gain access onto the ground of grace by faith, Romans 5, 2. We wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, Galatians 5, 5. We steward the good news of the gospel by faith, 1 Timothy 1, 4. We're guarded by God's power through faith, 1 Peter 1, 5. And we can go on all day with all the things that happen in the Christian life by faith by trusting, by believing, by orienting everything we're thinking and feeling around God, by seeing all of life with God in the middle. In other words, this is a massive sort of category of scripture that really is gonna provide the foundation for everything we're gonna talk about in the remaining weeks of this series. Yeah, you just think about even anxiety as an example that anxiety is sort of a warning light on the dashboard of our life that's saying whatever it is we're facing, whatever danger, whatever trial, whatever loss, we're not facing it with God in the very middle. And so it's really, really helpful feedback. When the dashboard, when that light of anxiety is going off, we're not meant to just feel guilty and ashamed. We're meant to actually go, okay, wait, this is a helpful signal to me that whatever it is I'm facing, whatever it is I'm under, whatever it is I'm enduring, Jesus isn't in the middle of it for me. That's why Psalm 23 is going to say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which is a way of saying the worst imaginable place on earth, I'll fear no evil. Why not? What does it say next? For you are with me. You're with me. And so if... To, what he's saying is if we really believe that, if we're really clinging to that, if that really is controlling our hearts and lives, we just won't fear evil. We won't be anxious for anything. Well, then why am I anxious so much? Well, because I, I forget he's with me. I haven't fully taken to heart, okay, he's with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. I have to go, okay, is that what comforts me? Does his presence comfort me? Does his word comfort me? Does his power comfort me? Or does just protection from circumstances comfort me? Does sort of walls of protection around me physically comfort me? What is it I run to to comfort me? Does food comfort me? Does entertainment comfort me? What am I running to to deal with anxiety in my life? That's just one day-to-day -day aspect of how living by faith is meant to be growing in our hearts and lives, where when we're facing danger, facing trial, facing loss, facing whatever it is, more and more God is in the very center of our thoughts. His promises are right in the middle of what we're feeling and even reshaping what we're feeling. Or depression, just as a massive sort of experience of being a human being and just how we face loss. So much of the despair we face and depression, depression, depression we face is just dealing with loss and pain, failure and suffering, but in a very caved-in, self-centered way. And what the gospel is trying to call us out to is, okay, look at him. Revolve around him. 
deal with all those losses, all that pain, all that failure, all that suffering, but deal with it with, with him. Talk to him. Listen to him. Trust him. That's why Paul can say, for him, I've suffered the loss of all things. He's writing this from prison. I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So the great sort of anti-depression statements in the whole Bible. Because a lot of depression, it, there's a reason it looks like grief and feels like grief. Because we're actually grieving the loss of things. It's just we're grieving the loss without seeing the gain. Without seeing that we may gain Christ. That we may be found in him. That we may have more of him. That's why Paul says, I don't consider the sufferings of this life worthy of comparison to the glory that's to be revealed in us. Well, how many of us, when we lose things, suffer in ways, do we actually compare it to the glory that's going to be revealed in us? Well, that's what faith does. It sees the glory that God's bringing. It sees the gain that God is providing. And so it reinterprets everything in our world through that lens of faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, for the love of Christ controls us. What a statement. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. There's faith. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. It's living by faith. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. What a statement. The love of Christ, what God has accomplished through Christ at Calvary and for our salvation in his resurrection, that controls us. It restrains us from doing things we shouldn't be doing. It compels us to do those things we should be doing. It restrains thoughts and emotions that are not edifying thoughts and emotions, and it compels thoughts and emotions that are edifying. It controls us. What it means is, by faith, we need to be thinking often and deeply about the love of Christ. What it means, what it provides, what it does. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, what occupies my thoughts? What do I fill my thoughts with? What do I fill my time with? What is the content that I'm pouring into my soul that is giving me the material to dwell upon and be controlled by? Because if we spend one minute a day thinking about the love of Christ, and then 23 hours and 59 minutes thinking about worldly fears or frustrations or anger or disappointments, whatever. you can understand who's going to win, what's going to control you, what's going to control thoughts and emotions and actions and perspectives and relationships and attitudes. So by concluding that everything the gospel declares about Jesus is true, and what it means and what it does, we are compelled to live for him rather than ourselves. So what it means is faith is not a small flippant thing. It's not this tiny little thing, but a condition and posture of heart entirely given over to God in trust and devotion as a way of life, as a way of thinking, a way of feeling, a way of living. It is a posture of heart, a condition of heart, entirely given over to God and trust and devotion. It is a way of seeing. It is a way of hearing. It is a way of interpreting the world. It is a way of relating to God through Christ and everything that God has said, everything he's accomplished in Christ. 
It is a heart posture in response to trials, in response to affliction, in response to the sins of others, in response to your own sins. Faith changes how we respond to all that. Any questions, comments, thoughts about faith before we start talking about repentance? Any thoughts on what we've talked about so far? Yeah, Lynn. Yeah, so Lynn's question is, so in Romans 7, we can all kind of sympathize with Paul saying, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this wretched body? Is that a faith thing? Is it just Paul's small faith? I think some of what he's expressing there is just, we're not home yet. He says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. That though united to Christ, our sins forgiven, we have a new nature in him, a new heart, yet sin still remains. So you've probably heard that you know, justif- justification is saving us from the penalty of sin. Sort of sanctification is saving us from the power of sin. Glorification will save us from the very presence of sin. So penalty, power, presence. That The penalty of sin has been paid for. The power of sin has been broken. But yet the presence of sin has not been removed. Not until glorification. So some of what Paul's getting at there is, I find then this thing is still in me. I want to do good. I want to serve God. I want to give him honor and glory, but there's just this thing that's still there that is not entirely taken away. And he says, who will save me from this wretched body? I think he just means this physical shell is the seed of sin, but all of that fallenness that's in him. And what's his answer to that question? You know how he closes that chapter? Who will save me from this wretched body? What does he say? Yeah, praise be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he, he knows that he's in him and there's a day coming when this body is going to be buried and then glorified and resurrected and then united and in the presence of sin will be removed. And so I think that's what he's expressing there. Good question. Well, repentance. I tend to put this after faith, even though, you know, we talk about repentance and faith and believing the gospel, turning from sin, clinging to Christ, that sort of makes sense. But in many ways, these just kind of go together. I see repentance as this unavoidable, necessary aspect of what effectual faith does. I see faith as a bigger category, even throughout scripture, but faith produces repentance. Jesus Christ, even as he begins his public ministry in Mark 1, is going to say, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. I think in those words, Jesus is kind of capturing the two legs of genuine, effectual, saving faith in response to the gospel. You repent and you believe. You turn from sin and you cling to another. You come out of the womb crying, tears of repentance, and then you're put upon your mother in faith. Grieve your sin and seek refuge in Christ. Turn from your iniquity and look to Christ. Forsake your attempts at self-righteousness and trust in his righteousness. Any different ways we can configure that movement. Turning from one, 
clinging to another. A heart of faith relates to God with a posture of humble repentance and trust. And again, this is really important in any kind of culture of easy believism, where faith is reduced to just knowing a certain set of facts without ever actually having to grieve your sin and experience sorrow over your sin and appeal to God for mercy as a sinner. We see this so clearly in Luke 18. Turn with there, if you would, with me to Luke chapter 18, where we're going to look at the heart of repentance. What is a heart of repentance? Lots of passages we could go to to get it. I think one of the, the clearest is in Luke 18, starting in verse 10. where Luke is going to give this sort of clear contrast between a repentant heart and a religious but unrepentant heart. Luke 18, verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. This is Jesus speaking. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, I mean the one he's pointing at, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, right with God, in right standing before God, declared righteous by God rather than the other. And remember that it's, it's by faith that we're, that we're declared righteous, right? And so just the fact that Jesus would put these words here means he thinks this is a critical expression of that faith. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think it's a really encouraging passage. I think it's a scary passage because clearly this Pharisee believes in Yahweh. He believes in the same God we believe in, the one true God. And he attributes his right standing before God to the kindness of God. Do you notice that? He actually attributes the fact that he's okay to God's kindness. But you notice how he does it? I thank you that you just haven't made me bad like everybody else that you've made me a really good guy. Lord, I give you the glory for making me so tremendous. That's sort of the spirit of it. He's talking to the right person. He's attributing the right person to doing some of that work for making him a good guy, not a bad guy. He credits the Lord for keeping him from sin, for making him do righteous things. But notice how he doesn't actually see himself as a sinner. He doesn't actually see himself as someone who is desperately in need of the grace of God. He doesn't actually see the attitude that he's praying with as the most offensive thing in the presence of God. Because there's nothing more anti-gospel than self-righteousness. Nothing more abhorrent in the presence of God than self-righteousness. That's why Isaiah's going to say, what are your righteous deeds before God? When you bring those, that self-righteousness before him, what does he call it? Filthy rags bloody rags 
You just take all your good deeds, all your good works that you've ever done, bring them before God to make those meritorious, and you say, will this do? And what he sees is filthy rags. We're bringing, in other words, uncleanness into his presence. We're actually increasing the problem. But the tax collector, notice he's contrite. He's broken. He's grieved over his sinfulness before God. He humbles himself before God as a sinner in need of mercy and grace. And Jesus says he goes to his house justified. While the Pharisee ironically goes to his house unforgiven. An unreconciled sinner. And the scary thing is that he has no idea. But what we want to see is the genuineness of their faith is divided by the presence of repentance. The tax collector is actually repentant, and that's the expression of this is true faith from a truly regenerated heart. Whereas the Pharisee, okay, this, this is unrepentance, so that is the expression of an unregenerate heart and false faith. And even after we're receiving a new heart, coming to faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins, we're not supposed to just be done with repentance. The other part we're meant to see. It's not that, okay, this is this one-time act, this button we hit, now we're done. What it does is it puts us on a new road of a life of repentance, a posture of repentance that I don't think means we're just every single day getting out a fine-tooth cone and trying to find every single little sin we ever do and becoming self-absorbed and fixated, but rather a posture of, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that just being the posture of our heart and life. The way we relate to other people. Now, we're never in the presence of another person who's worse than us, ever. I mean, how freeing that is, just takes all that examination off the table. That I'm never in the presence of a person who God thinks is worse than I am. Who is in more need of grace than I am. Maybe I'm further down the road of sanctification than they are. Maybe there's some external things that are more in place by this time than the other. Maybe there's certain gifts that the Lord has given me that hasn't given them, but other gifts he's given them that he hasn't given me. And he certainly has them on the same trajectory. No matter how much further down the road, we still all started at the same place. We still had all the same stuff we were wearing in the presence of God, still all in the same need of mercy. It's that posture, that attitude before God. He says, that's repentance. That's what real faith does. If you want words of repentance, we're not going to have time to go there now, but Psalm 51, or you can just Google penitential Psalms in the Bible, and there'll just be a list of Psalms that come up that are just great. If, you, if you're looking for words that will help capture for you the, the, the emotion, the thoughts, the way of relating to God from a repentant heart, Psalm 51 is, is beautiful in that way. There's also evidence of repentance. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Great passage on just the evidence of repentance. Where Paul is going to refer to this letter that is a lost letter. We don't have it, but he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church that grieved them because it was confronting them with all kinds of sin that was going on in the congregation. And he says, for even, verse 8, if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. Meaning there's this little pang of, okay, I caused you grief, I regret that, but I really don't regret it. 
And here's why. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And here's what godly grief is. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Doesn't mean we don't regret sin. It means we don't regret the grief that the Lord brought into our life to help us see that sin and need for repentance. Whereas worldly grief produces death. See also Cain, who was really sad about the consequences of his sin, but he wasn't grieved by his sin. He was really upset about the punishment he had to endure, but he wasn't at all sad about the offense he brought to God by killing his brother. Or Esau, who's going to weep with many tears because he sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge, but he's not going to actually grieve his sin. He's not going to weep over that. That's what Paul's calling, that's worldly sorrow, where you just grieve consequences. You grieve punishments. You grieve costs. You don't actually grieve the offense to God. But godly grief does. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. In other words, this eagerness to be a new kind of person. This sorrow over sin that ignites a kind of enthusiasm and seriousness about putting that sin to death. Like if you walk into your house and some of your precious belongings are on fire, you don't just stand there and go, oh, that's too bad. You probably get drastic, take drastic action to put the fire out. That's what he's getting at, earnestness. You actually, you're begging God, striving to be a very different kind of person to put sin to death. Eagerness to clear yourselves, that the tarnish of sin upon the name of Christ, the tarnish of sin upon those that we've wronged is so detestable to the repentant heart that that heart just cannot rest until there's honest confession, honest repentance to clear, to show that no, we really do love God and others. Indignation, yeah, just the sin that was appreciated and exalted before is loathed and hated now. What was once a joke is now tragic. It sin's no longer small to us, no longer funny. So eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear. I think we have to assume this is a fear toward God, a fear that respects the holiness of God, a reverence for God. And fear, that kind of fear is the beginning of wisdom. It compels righteousness. Because when you think about it, worldly sorrow just fears worldly disapproval. It just fears worldly consequences. Whereas godly fear fears God's disapproval. What longing, in other words, desires begin to change. We get new longings when we're repentant. A renewed yearning for fellowship with Christ, with other believers, longing for reconciliation. What zeal, which grows out of that longing, zeal for righteousness, zeal for reconciliation that turns to, to action, to change. Genuine repentance involves a, a zealous new love for God, love for others. Yeah, what punishment? I think what he's getting at there is the cost of repentance is irrelevant to the repentant soul. The cost of what it takes to make it right. The cost of whatever God has to take away. Whatever has to be put on us 
to conform us to the image of Christ, to keep us humble and repentant. We just don't care what it takes. I think that's what he's getting at there. Any questions about repentance before we close with some implications? And hopefully you see that all of this is about orientation to God. That's some of what we're going to talk about in implications. That faith is never just in a vacuum. Repentance is never just in a vacuum. These words are all about orientation to God, how we relate to God and others. And that's why the first implication is dependence upon God, not dependence upon self. That even our faith is a gift of God. Even our repentance is a gift of God. It is the result of his grace. So it's something we have to pray for. That's why Paul and, you know, or um, I'm sorry, David in Psalm 141 is going to pray, Lord, let the righteous smite me. It is a kindness. Let him reprove me. It is oil upon my head. Let not my head refuse it. Isn't that a great prayer? Let the righteous, when they see me doing wrong, just punch me in the nose. I'll take it as a kindness. Let them reprove me. I'll take it as the sign of you blessing me. You anointing me. Oh, Lord, please make sure my head doesn't refuse it. Make me delighted, cheerful, and accepting the reproof that you send through people, through situations. And just to think, is that how we tend to receive correction? Somebody comes and they reprove you, brother, sister. I, you kind of said, I heard you say this to this or saw you did it. And it just looked ungodly. I think it was wrong. And is our heart just, wow, thank you. What a kindness. I will receive this as a love from the Lord to help me see. That's what David's getting at. That's what part of what dependence upon God now is, Lord, I need you to feed my faith. I need you to keep my heart soft so that I'll live a repentant life. Because we realize we don't just manufacture that. We need God doing that work continually in our hearts and lives. It's interesting that all you have to do to make soil go bad is leave it alone. And over time, the nutrients will just get leached out. All the good stuff in it will get leached out. That's just part of living in a world that's under the curse. So for soil to stay soft, to stay fruitful, you have to till it. You have to fertilize it. You have to keep reintroducing nutrients into it. You have to sow into it different kinds of vegetation and organic material. And anybody here who gardens, you know this. If you just leave your soil alone for 20 years, it will get worse with time. But if you keep tilling into it the stuff that it needs, well, that's some of what we're talking about here. We're asking, Lord, keep tilling into my soul the nutrients that are needed to keep me soft, to keep me fruitful, to keep me humble, to keep me repentant. Another implication is conviction rather than condemnation. I think we live in a day and age that, that too quickly we feel condemned or we interpret what we're feeling as condemned when the right word is conviction. I hear it all the time, oh, Christians, it's so condemning. And I almost want to say, do you mean condemning or convicting? And how do you know the difference? I think that's just a question we have to ask ourselves. Do I know the difference between feeling condemned and feeling conviction that the Spirit is bringing in me? 
I'm not going to answer that for you now. It's something I'd encourage you to go home and talk about with others and even think about, pray about this week, is, is do I know what spiritual conviction feels like? Do I just interpret feeling bad about my sin as condemnation all the time? Or is this actually how the Spirit is bringing me to a place of repentance and deeper faith? Hope, not shame. I think that's another implication of everything we're talking about. Because of faith, because of repentance, our hope now is in God, in Christ, in salvation. And that hope won't be put to shame. We don't have to walk around anticipating disappointment, anticipating it won't be worth it. No, we're, we're given a, a firm hope. Romans 5, 1 through 5 talks about this. I think grateful worship is an implication rather than guilty silence. That when God produces real faith, real repentance in our hearts, I don't think we're meant to just be silently guilty. It should produce, listen to this in 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. That's Paul's assessment of himself. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners and I'm the worst one I know. If we had like a club for sinners, I'd be the president. I'd be elected every year, landslide in his mind. And we should all really think this way about ourselves because there's nobody's thoughts we know more clearly than our own. Nobody really sees inside of us the way the Lord helps us see inside of us. So, so nobody should look more sinful than we do to ourselves if we're being honest. If we're paying attention to what's actually going on inside of us, we go, yeah, I don't know anybody worse than me. I don't know anybody that gets as angry as I do. I don't know anybody who is as anxious as I am. I don't know anybody who's as covetous. Because you see the stuff that goes on inside, and you're like, yeah, it's, it's bad in there. That's what Paul's getting at. I'm the foremost. But then listen to this. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's like, you know why I got mercy? So that God could show the whole world just how patient he is. Where the whole world goes, wait a minute, Saul of Tarsus? God saved him? And Paul's like, yeah. And everybody goes, wow, God's patient. God's gracious. Are we okay with our testimonies working that way? Where you say to someone, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus now. I'm a Christian. And they look and go, You? Oh, wow. Whoever your God is, he must be gracious. I mean, that's what our salvation displays, is that grace of God. But then Paul doesn't just get stuck there. God's great. I'm awful. Woe is me. I guess. Here we go. Listen to what he says next. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It compels him to worship. He doesn't wallow. He worships. He doesn't feel bad for himself and guilty and ashamed. He gives praise to God for his grace. I think it can produce humility, not self-loathing. When we see that, yeah, we're sinners, but redeemed by the grace of God, when we're brought to a place of repentance and faith and living by repentance and faith, I don't think that's a posture of self-loathing. I think self-loathing is actually a sign of unrepentance. Self-pity is unrepentance. It's amazing the things in our world that can actually look contrite and repentant when they're really not. Esau was moved to tears. Cain was bemoaning and very upset. His countenance fell. But it wasn't repentance. It was self-pity. It was sort of loathing the circumstances. 
What repentance and faith, what that produces is humility before God and others. Forgiveness in Christ, not self-punishment. It's now rather than sort of punishing ourselves, afflicting ourselves, trying to atone for our sin, trying to pay God back, we just accept forgiveness. That's why the whole movement of self-forgiveness is false. It's misleading. Nowhere in the whole Bible are you ever told to forgive yourself. Not one time. It's not even suggested, not even hinted. God doesn't even beat around it. Forgiving self is not something we do. We receive forgiveness. We accept the forgiveness of God in Christ. We forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. But forgiveness is something we go to God for. We don't do to ourselves. We don't produce for ourselves. Nor do we atone for ourselves, but rather we receive the atonement of Christ. A couple minutes left for any questions, comments, thoughts. There's some discussion questions at the end just for you to take with you to talk about over lunch or this afternoon. But any questions now, any comments before we close? No question, no comments. Yes, Aaron. Yeah, so it's a good question. The question is, when, we, when we're in conversation, we see those, sort of that other side of the coin coming out, the shame rather than the hope, the guilty silence rather than grateful worship, the self-loathing rather than humility, self-punishment rather than forgiveness. How do we talk about that together? I think one is, we start to introduce these very kinds of categories in the conversation. As we might even say, okay, what I hear right now is, is sort of self-loathing rather than just humbly receiving the grace of God in Christ. What I hear is kind of you grieving that you weren't better rather than delighting in the fact that Jesus was so much better and his work is imputed to you. What I hear and see is kind of self-punishment. You're trying to pay for this. You're trying to atone for this by afflicting yourself in some way. And I think there's questions we can ask. So we're just observing, we're just seeing, but we're starting to introduce those categories and we're asking questions of just, where do you think that comes from? What do you think that's about? What do you think is compelling you to do that? Why do you think you, you live under that guilt when Jesus bore your guilt? It may be going to sort of some of the passages that I have even listed there. Colossians 2, 20 through 23, and 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17, Romans 5, 1 through 5. Just saying, hey, look, can we just read this? And see how might this passage encourage your heart to move from this to this. So introducing the categories, I think it's big. Starting to ask questions that draw out, you know, how do they think they got there? Are they seeing it that way? Beginning to introduce, move into passages of scripture that can start to show how the gospel is trying to change that. Move us in a different direction. And then don't close the conversation by saying, all better, right? 
that, that get it, we good? All right, we're not gonna talk about this again, are we? No, it, it's, it's now a commitment to, hey, let's, keep, let's pray through this. Let's follow up, let's keep talking. This is not a quick fix. This is not an easy road. This takes time. And, but these are the kinds of things I think we should be talking about and helping each other to see. But, let me pray for us. Well, Father, we just, yeah, thank you for your grace that is so lavish in Christ and bringing us to believe, to know the truth of the gospel, to be convinced of it, to entrust ourselves to Christ and to what he has accomplished. We know that is, those are products of your grace. We thank you for loving us enough to convict us of sin, to help us to see our need for mercy, to compel us to run to the cross for mercy. And now we pray that you would till our hearts in a way that produces a growing humility, a growing hope, a growing worshipfulness toward you, a growing sense of our forgiveness in him, our willingness to forgive others, to love others, to be humble together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.